Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM. Let's create. But then I have like young filmmakers who come to me and they're like, why are you beating yourself up so much? Like, you figure this out. You know what you're doing. And I'm like, because the beating the self up is how you get the good stuff. It's like getting into beginner's mind. It's like reinventing, scared that it's not going to work, taking chances enough to where it could fall apart on you so that you're like on the edge of like what is important to you in this moment and everything that you feel and like you know it's like priming yourself to be like emotionally available intellectually available imminently in touch with this moment in society Uh, you know all that shit (laughs) that was jay duplass i'm sam fragoso and this is talk easy welcome to the show Jay Duplass is a filmmaker, a producer, a writer, an actor, an activist, a man who in many ways jump-started Kickstarter and the people on it. He's done a whole bunch of different things for different people at different times, and I imagine everyone's entry into Jay Duplass is a little bit different. It would be incredibly boring if I went down the long, long list of everything he's either produced, directed, written, or acted in, but you know the main ones. He's in Transparent, he co-created the show Togetherness, he's been alongside his brother Mark Duplass on all of their films, from The Puffy Chair to Jeff Who Lives at Home. The point is, the guy has done 
a lot of things. Uh, and one of the things he doesn't like doing in the circus of Hollywood is uh, doing interviews. You know, we've had a whole bunch of people who have come on the show and told us off the top that interviews are not something they're particularly good at or they don't feel comfortable doing. And I have to say, when someone says that in the beginning of an hour conversation and we address it and we understand the room that we're in and the thing we're about to embark on, the conversations go pretty damn well. I'm not really sure there's a moral of this story other than that, you know, if you're uncomfortable with something, it never hurts to just say you're uncomfortable. So for the next hour, Jay and I go over what we often go over in this show. We talk about his upbringing in New Orleans, how he attended a Jesuit high school, how he went to University of Texas, how he's been making art with his brother for a long, long time. But we also get into some more interesting territory about the idea of balance, about how all these good things that can happen in your life don't exactly make you happy. Jay may have said he's not particularly good at interviews, but he did a pretty good job this week. So, finally, here is Jay Duplass. I'm not a big fan of talking about myself. Great. Uh, and that's what press is, and that's what we're doing here. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So we're going to do an hour of something you don't like. Yeah. Doing. Well, you know, it can be fun. Um, I think podcasts are a different deal, but yeah, I just came from the Larry King show. Ah. I just did that. Um, did he do a good job? He's remarkably good at interviewing people. I don't know if people know this, but it's been, been years. Yeah. <laughs> the thing about Larry King that I was always shocked by is that he was like, the one thing you need to know about my interviews is that I don't do any preparation for them. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know if you should say that out loud. <laughs> yeah. No, he's got a lot of cute cards and he he likes to interrupt you. Oh, great. And just go right to the next question. He just keeps them coming, man. I think that's him being like, I'm bored. Can we move on? I think on it is. I next? think it's brilliant. You know, just like stop fucking yammering about that shit. Okay. Can I speak? Can I curse? Yeah. Okay. You can you it's, can curse as much as you want. It's already happened twice. It's you're totally fine. All right. Um, I probably won't interrupt you as often as he does. Maybe you should. I'll I'll consider it. <laughs> I'll consider it. So outside in, um, we won't have to talk about it for the whole time, but I want to lead with it since it is coming out next week. I don't know. March thirtieth. March thirtieth. In theaters. In theaters. It is very much a movie about a guy who gets out of jail after twenty years. And is starting a new life, essentially. Mm -hmm. And what I found interesting, I saw the movie back in Toronto. Oh, cool. And it has stuck with me in that the central question of it seems to be, what is a normal, good life? My latest big question I ask myself is um, how to, like, my goal right now is, like, making good days, you know? Because right. I'm lucky enough to be at this place in my career where, like, Tons of stuff is coming at me, and I'm just trying to keep my antenna up for the right things. And but if I just let the days happen to me the way that I guess like studios and producers and stuff and want to fill it with, you'll just be working 16 hours a day. So it's like you have to get real careful about like what exactly you want to do. Um, 
And but yeah, I mean, this movie is is about that on like a whole grand scheme, which is, um, you know, you come out of prison and and there's literally nothing. You literally have nothing. And and you know, I think it's a lot of people in this film have a lot of expectations for this guy, Chris, but he. He's just trying to get some nuggets, you know. What I mean? <laughs> like he's, you know, I think you know we explore it very lightly in the film, but you know, I think what anyone who has thought about it just even briefly knows that our society is not set up to to rehabilitate people, to take them back into society, to reintegrate them. I mean, it's actually set up to send them right back to prison. So, right. just just the ba- the very basics of like not going broke are really hard to accomplish. Mm. It's it's the parallels stop at the end of like he has that scene where he goes to his I think, corrections officer mm-hmm. and he's like, "Well, you're not exactly free." Yeah. Yet. I imagine you feel a little more free in your day-to-day than um the character. <laughs> I don't feel free. I'm prob- <laughs> I'm way freer than Chris and I realize that, but you know, um I like that you just told me I'm wrong. This is I'm, great. I'm married. I have two young children. I'm a good dad. I'm a good husband. Not great, but I'm do my best. I, you know, I have a creative partnership with my brother. My parents live in town. I spend a lot of time with them. Uh. I try to be a good friend, and then I try <laughs> and do this massive job that we do, where we make a lot of movies and TV shows. So, I actually don't. Like for me, I'm doing this unusual thing where I'm going to go camping tomorrow morning and I'm going to go leave tomorrow morning. I'm going to come back Thursday night. The amount of work I had to do to carve out two days and the amount, the amount of times where I would just think to myself, if I just cancel this trip, then I could just, then stuff would loosen up a little bit because everything's tightening up so much that I'm taking two weekdays off to go camping. Right. It's, so it's so you dumb. do feel restricted. Yeah, I feel incredibly restricted. I can feel that. I, I didn't know that was, I mean, I don't know your day-to-day, but... Oh, yeah. At, at what point, or rather, did you think at any point along the line that this is where you'd end up? No, I thought I'd be wildly unsuccessful. <laughs> um, I did not expect any level of success. I thought I was going to be probably a psychologist when I grew up, you know, and I would just have clients and maybe do some research and stuff. That's what I was preparing to do in college you definitely could have gone on more camping trips if you were a psychologist oh, way more camping trips if i was a psychologist living in austin texas just like you know having tons of free time i mean i could do it now it's really all my own choosing i mean i'm I, you know i could totally arrange my life right. as such i mean you're a grown man i'm a grown ass man and you know i could make these decisions but i am compulsive and i did grow up going to you know Catholic prep schools that just like schedule you like a motherfucker. Right. You know, now, I, I, think, I also went to a Catholic prep school. I, I, think <laughs> it, I think it really like, um, it's like it invades your being yeah. in the way, because the thing that people ask about Mark and me is like, it's very interesting because we didn't grow up in a creative environment. We were creative. We grew up in a very structured environment. Yeah. But I think that's why we do make so much stuff. And that's why we, work so steadfastly is like I used to call it like the Catholic high school schedule I used to put myself on you know where I would like okay I'm going to write for two hours okay now I'm going to do promo for one hour and then for one hour I'm going to do exercise and then this and you know because 
that's how it is in Catholic school. And then, you know, you get off of school and then you do cross country and then you do debate. Right. And you get home at seven and you do homework and you barely go to sleep by 10. Yeah. And you do it all over again. Wake up early. And then in the summer, there's like summer reading. Oh, the, the summer reading. <laughs> By the way, let me tell you, no one's fucking read those books in summer reading. The, <laughs> I know. The, that's the last minute I'm like, skim- I remember that. I was oh, like that's skimming. skimming. Yeah. Oh. Well, I mean, and I grew up at a time where we didn't have the internet. So right. there was no, if you had to, if you wanted to get the Cliff's Notes, you had to like go to B. Dalton Bookseller <laughs> in the mall and risk like one of your professors seeing you there. Right. You know, or it was, there was like shame in buying Cliff's Notes. Like I knew they existed. Existed and people talked about them, but I didn't really go there. But also, if you went to a hardcore Catholic school, I went to a Jesuit school. Like the, the those priests, they knew what was revealed in the Cliff's Notes and not in the book, and they would yeah. ask you questions that they were not revealed. Yeah, they were smart teachers. They are not they, messing around. <laughs> <laughs> they did give. I do remember they gave us um, like those itineraries in the beginning of the school where school year where it was like okay. Here's your week, and now you have to like lay out your whole day. Yeah. And I remember there was an assignment that was like, we're going to check your itinerary. Oh, and yeah. Is it organized? And mm-hmm. that will be, you'll be given points or you won't be given points based on that. That's actually probably the most pragmatic life skill or thing that you learned in high school is like how to organize your day and get shit done. Yeah, it is. And then there's a part of me that completely resents that. Oh, yeah. I hate their guts. So. Then when it happens in my day-to-day now where I'm planning it out, I'm like, oh, this feels so much like me being 12. Yeah. And that's uh, an agonizing back and forth. It is. It is. Um, It certainly makes for a productive life, that's for sure. Yeah. I think uh, you have, you know, by not knowing you very well, you seem to be very productive. Yeah. I I do a lot of things, I think. Yeah. but my brother is actually more productive than I am. He's relentless. Is it a competition? I think it's a... No, it's not a competition because he will always win in terms of volume. Mm-hmm. There's... Is it, it like a Jordan Pippen kind of thing? <laughs> like you're on the same team? Yeah, we're definitely on the same team. Um, yeah, it, it's just... Well, I think we function in those ways a lot of... Like he's kind of like the gas and I'm the brakes. Yeah. He's really like setting things up and then this is how it was more more in the beginning he's setting things up and looking out and then i'm looking inward and looking at our team like he's more connected to the agents and to setting up the concept of the film and then i'm more connected with like the dp and you know maybe the actors and the editor and just trying to make sure that it's a phenomenal piece of art you know Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good yin and yang, though. It is good, because he has a lot of confidence, and I have a lot of um, obsessiveness. Right. Oh, then you guys work out perfectly. Yeah. Was this true, so in, in 1990 or 1991, you you grow up in New Orleans, mm-hmm. you go to Jesuit school, mm-hmm. and then you go to the University of Texas. Yes. Is that 91? Is 91. That, is that accurate? Arrival. Okay. That's right. Was that dynamic in place then, or what was going on at that time? With me and Mark? Yeah, because you were 18. You no. had moved to a different state. No, we were, we were, you know, I think high school was the time where we were our most separate because, you know, we're three and a half years apart. We were four years apart in school. So there was just a big difference, you know what I mean? He was playing Little League still, and I had a girlfriend and was playing in a band or whatever, you know. Um, and when I got to the University of Texas, though, you know, it's strange. I always think he's older than you. 
I know Mark seems older than me because he's bigger, he's more confident, he's more type A. So he kind of seems like the older brother. Um, but I'm uh, I'm a fully fledged human being. Um, I'm type B. I have a lot of fucking feelings, um, <laughs> <laughs> and I question myself a lot. Um, and the, and the, that maybe seems like a younger brother to a lot of people. Um, he feels like my older brother, honestly. Um, but, um, yeah, when I was in Austin, Mark would come fly up or drive up on, when he had a spring break or he would fly up on a weekend every once in a while. And um, it was pretty cool because Austin was, I didn't know it then, but now I'm aware it's like it was the birthplace of like modern DIY filmmaking in the United States as far as I'm concerned. I mean, these things are iterative, you know, but Richard Linklater and Robert Rodriguez within a couple of years made right. feature films under $20,000 and they were normal dudes wearing jeans and t-shirts that we saw around town because a very small sleepy town at that time. Yeah. That and music. There was a ton of music going on. We were used to that. We came up in that world from New Orleans, but it's funny because that has been, you know, this you know slacker coming out, mm-hmm. and before that, I think for another group of filmmakers, it was like Sex Lies and videotapes. Yep, it has now taken this own sort of like mythology to like Linklater in jeans and like yeah. it, it almost uh, it was inspiring in a lot of ways that I don't think many people are now. No, it was the first time that I think we realized that normal people made could make a movie, <laughs> and that there was an amount of money that you could fathom. That it could be made for, you know, because before those movies, I mean, the cheapest feature was like $650,000, you know. So it was definitely eye-opening. Mark and I never dreamed we would be filmmakers, you know, just because the point of entry seemed so expensive. And we just didn't even know where the movies came from. They just came across cable, you know, and they just dumped into your TV. (laughs) Didn't even realize a person made them. They were just there. Yeah, you didn't have as much knowledge as you do now. No, not at all. Everything was a mystery. I mean, like, when I saw Raising Arizona in 1987, it was the first time that I realized, like, a human being made a movie. Right. And although I can't see them, I can feel their personality, and I can feel their brain and their humor, and I can sense into all that. It's interesting that that's the film. I've heard you talk about this before in another interview. I I saw... I think it's just because I was 14. It was the right time. It's it was funny. so funny to me. It was so smart. I was smart enough to get like the, the innuendo. I was smart enough to get the deeper messages in there. But even at that time, I remember thinking, oh, this is two brothers made this, the Cohen brothers. But you couldn't, you couldn't, there was no internet. You can't just like pick up a, there's no pictures or anything. It's just like, a total blind mystery and you're just kind of like looking through the video store. You're talking to the guy at the video <laughs> store. So this guy, the Cohen brothers, they made, and he's like, yeah, well, that's, this isn't their first right. movie by far. They had this other first movie's blood Simple, symbols, yeah. you know, and they're all, and then I'm like, how do I see it? And he's like, I don't know, bro. I had a friend who had a copy, man. You see, know, that's, that, that's the world we were living in. The mystery part of it, I think that was good. It oh, sounds, we've lost so, it. It sounds like that was good. I wasn't exactly alive for that. Oh, it was incredible. I mean, in retrospect, because like Mark and I would like comb video stores just looking for anything that was like non-standard filmmaking. I mean, and you just didn't know anybody who was into, we didn't know anybody who yeah. knew any of these films. It was like 
only ours and we were trying to figure it out. And it's... I mean, the people who ran video stores were uh, so informative. They were like they were f- gods. fountains of information. They were gods. Like, I don't yeah. know, you know, could like superstar the Ton Haynes film, could that happen now? Like, could we be... Like, that movie was always like, oh, some friend has a copy of it. Oh, I found yeah. it. And I don't know... No, it can't happen that doesn't now happen because now. it's just like, dude, put it on the internet. Yeah. Put it on YouTube. There'd be some shitty ass yeah. download that you could find. Yeah. I had a friend who recently articulated very specifically one clear example of why he thinks the internet is like ruining life. Because, you know, we all kind of feel it. And we're all on our phones and we don't, you know, interact in the ways that we used to. But right. he said something really specific. And he said this. He said, if you're on Facebook and you're following everything that's happening with your friends, when you see them, you have nothing to talk about because <laughs> you already know. So not that you can't elaborate or whatever, but it's just like, you know when your friend used to go on a vacation right. and they'd go to like Hawaii or whatever, and you'd be like, what happened? What was it like? Yeah. You don't even ask anymore because you saw all the fucking pictures, man. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you saw the pictures, all the narrations in there. It literally inhibits conversation. There used to be stories. There were stories and you could lie. Oh. You could lie. You could tell lies. You just, a small incident, embellish. Embellish, man. God. And then get busted on it later. Who knows the truth? It's all a mystery. You know what? You generally didn't get busted. You didn't get busted. There 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 wasn't rigorous (laughs) fact-checking. No, no. Now you can basically do forensics on anybody and what they did. That's such a, a good comment it's so deeply depressing that i don't know how to proceed but yeah it's it's really intense i mean the other thing too is like the whole concept of um i don't know why this is important to anyone it probably doesn't matter at all but like you know going home so let's say i want to go home to new orleans or go back to austin and visit like three people that i just have been missing and really want to see them but all those motherfuckers know you're there and they're tracking you down and it's like you can't even have a sacred experience because like it's like the amount of times i've gone i remember last year someone's gonna hear this and be like what the fuck but i went to new york for like five days Mm -hmm. and i didn't tell anybody yes that i was going because if you say anything then you're slighting people yes and that's really i know it's a stupid problem to even talk about but it is the bigger issue besides like oh we can't fit scheduling forget scheduling that doesn't matter the bigger issue is that there are endless more opportunities to disappoint people oh man that's the worst that's the pain disappointing people is my worst nightmare (laughs) It's the worst. It's my worst nightmare and a constant reality. And a constant reality. Yeah. That's that's something that's real. I imagine it's even harder in your case because there are more people tracking at this point. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a little bit. It's a kind of a weird thing. Yeah, there's pe- people are tracking me. I saw something on the internet one time recently where it was like Jade Duplass is the most famous person from our class. And I was like, ooh, that really hit home in some weird way. You know what I'm saying? Like that there is some knowledge out there or that that is a discussion that is being had. And it's odd for me too because I was a pretty quiet kid. You know, I'm like pretty type B. 
you know, um, I'm a, I was a sleeper, you know, <laughs> um, sleeper hit. Um, Why do you it, think that was? Um, I'm pretty insular. I'm a pretty, I'm a, I'm a, I'm, um, I'm an introvert. Um, I can be the master of ceremonies if people so demand. And I have that within me, but I'm naturally an introvert and I'm just kind of like a, um, I just make stuff, you know, and I probably would have just been making stuff in Austin, making weird art and distributing it on my front lawn uh, <laughs> if I hadn't made it to Hollywood and gotten paid to do it, you know. But that's always been like my focus is like inner world, inner life and stuff like that. So, I mean, I'm like so grateful that my brother is so confident t to sort of like put shit in the world in a way to say things like, let's just submit this film to Sundance. You never know. Right. Cut to $3 movie plays at Sundance and all that. now I have an agent and a lawyer. Right. I mean, I don't always think to do that, you know? So the idea of a high school class being like, he is the guy. They're talking about me. It's, yeah, it's weird. And I mean, for sure, like, I think I probably get a lot more text messages and emails uh, when I'm in town, you know, and it's, you know, it's a, that's probably a good problem to have. Yeah. What happens, speaking of like Austin, you graduate in 95, 96. Mm -hmm. From there, you know, you make that first film, The New Brad. It, it comes out in 2002. You probably made it in 2001, I believe. Yeah. I actually made two features before the new Brad okay. in Austin. See, I wanted to ask you about. Yeah, I'm always curious in that sort of like interlude time. I actually made three features. Okay, three. Three. One was a multi-directorial thing, but that was more like short film. But two features with Mark that we made on just like cheap digital cameras at that time that were terrible. You know, so I was <laughs> trying to be the Coen Brothers us trying to be John Cassavetes, us trying to be something that was not us, you know? And um, it's interesting that you know about the new Brad because we always talk about this as John as the first breakthrough of who we are and what we uniquely have to offer. But the truth is it was this tiny movie called The New Brad filmed on my parents' video camera that we filmed it at Christmas in... We filmed it in 1999 at Christmas. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just my brother having broken up with a girlfriend and then the Christmas holidays show show up and he decides that he doesn't want to be broken up with her and he tracks her down at her parents' house. And um, it's definitely has all the seeds of what we were <laughs> to do eventually, even more so than this is John, I would say. What did the girlfriend make of it? Well, this is a fictional story, and we just used a friend of ours who had done some acting. Um, Rachel Harris was, is her name. Um, and we made my mom be the mom <laughs> in it, and he sneaks into their house, and she chases him around with a broom. Sounds crazy. It is kind of crazy, but it's... Um, and my dad's in it. and it, But it didn't play any big festivals. But I remember, it did play the New Orleans Film Festival in a big room, and people were laughing crazy hard and they're like, it was like a dumb and dumber type screening. Like, <laughs> but, um, I just chalked it up to like, Oh, a lot of my parents' friends are here, yeah. you know, but in retrospect, I know enough about screenings to know that you can't make people laugh that hard, no matter how much they know you and love you. Yeah. You know? So 
Mark and I have recently started to talk about that. It that was actually the breakthrough movie. It wasn't really This Is John. This Is John was the three dollar movie. Right. Him in an answering machine that went to Sundance. That that one seemed to blow up. That was a blow up. I mean, that we got written up by Variety as one of the best short films in the festival. We screened next to a seven hundred fifty thousand dollars short film, and everyone liked ours better. What was that? It was a thirty minute short film. I don't remember the name of it. Seven hundred fifty thousand shot in Poland. Ah, uh, well. Things are American, very expensive in Poland. American dollars in Poland. So that means it's basically was a $1.5 million film. Amer- you know what I mean? That's got to be crushing. It was pretty crushing for them, I think. They didn't win an award. They were very upset. Um, I mean, it was, yeah, it was it was an odd experience. But yeah, we were there with our little seven-minute digital short. Before that film goes to Sundance in those five or six years, do you have any reservations about making this a career? Uh, yeah, full blown diarrhea. I feel like that's knowing you now for twenty four minutes. That seems natural. Oh, nonstop freaking the fuck out. Right. Panic attacks, diarrhea. But see, this part of your story gets lost. I think because when people find out about you and Mark, it's yeah. always like. Things worked out so great. No, they think we woke up one morning, took a shit, and the puffy chair came out. Yeah. They have no idea we made tons of bad movies and suffered. And you know what I'm saying? And to be honest, we did not, we did nothing to dispel that myth. Yeah. No, why, why would you? Because you want studios to think that you wake up, take shits, and it's a better and story. Cyrus, Cyrus comes out. You know, yeah. we're about to take another shit. You guys get ready to catch it. Yeah. I mean, it's so dumb, but it is. It's not even a better story. I think the truth is a better story, but it's, 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 it's the myth, man. They yeah. want to believe that you're untouchable on some level. And not only that, but like when I got This Is John into Sundance, I was, I was almost 30. And when we made Puffy Chair, I was like 32 and I was married. And people thought, because we look young, that we were both like in our early 20s. And I also did nothing to dispel that myth because <laughs> I just want them to think, you know, whatever they wanted, you know, I was like willing to do it because I just wanted, I, 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 like you were guessing, I mean, when we made This Is John, I was ready to quit. I mean, I was like, dude, I can't do it anymore. You know, it was me and Mark in an apartment in South Austin by ourselves. And I was like, I can't, I can't do it anymore. Like I, I'm torturing mom and dad. I'm torturing myself. I, you know, I mean, I was like a straight A college student. Like right. I could have been at the top of my field as a psychologist. I mean, I could have been doing anything. And like over the years from 22 to 30, I had been watching my friends like become successful and make money and like get married and have kids and buy houses. And I was like, making $14,000 a year eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, you know? At a certain point, that gets tiring. It was exhausting, and it was embarrassing, and it was like, oh, I can't, I just can't. It's just like, why am I doing this to everybody, including myself? And, you know, that day, you know, Mark was like, we're going to make a movie today. He's the gas. You know, he's like, I don't, I don't care what we do. And I was like, we don't have a 60 millimeter camera. We don't have any, we don't have lights. We don't have people. Cause we came up in the, you know, making 16 millimeter movies. And, um, and he's like, I don't give a shit. We use mom and dad's camera. He's like, I'm going to the store and I'm buying a tape. And he went to Seven Eleven. and he bought a $3 tape 
and he's and he said just come up with something just anything you know and it was uh, the, basically the story that i came up with was that you know the about a week before i had tried to perfect the personal greeting of my answering machine and i had to do about maybe like 15 takes because i was fucking it up so much it required like a little bit more detail it was like i think i was doing some casting thing or whatever with it and um i had a nervous breakdown and i ended up crying because i you know i was just like obliterated because i was like if i can't get this answering machine message right how am i going to be a successful filmmaker and mark's eyes lit up and he's like okay and he improvised the whole thing and i shot it in 20 minutes and and uh we submitted it to sundance on a lark <laughs> so your nervous breakdown turned into uh the reason you're here that's the reason i'm here is i well yes i was i had a nervous breakdown and i put it on camera <laughs> um posthumously <laughs> do you think you're especially hard on yourself oh yeah yeah and does mark have the same rigor yeah uh he has a different rigor uh i mean i think mark's been a, is a little more strategic than me about how to manage his own rigor and uh self um worth you know mark's sort of philosophy is um i'm going to my brain is going to um destroy something so i'd rather it destroy a movie or you know create or destroy something you know <laughs> what i'm saying so he's like that's why he does really really high volume you know he he has his hands in twice as much as I do. I'm the busiest person that all my friends know by far. And Mark's like twice as busy as I am. And he has a very strict philosophy of like, I am not going to overthink anything. And, you know, he's said it before, like, I'm looking for a solid B, you know what I mean? And sometimes they get better and sometimes they get worse. You know, I'm a little bit more, I need to bake the best fucking possible thing in the world. And, mm. you know, I think we, but you were an A student. I was an A student, yes. But, well, in art, in the way, it's interesting with art because Mark and I have talked about this a lot. It's like, you know, to get from an, a solid B to an A plus is like twice as much work as getting to the solid B. Like that extra, it's not, it's a J curve. It's not like a straight line, you know what I mean? Right. Um, so, uh, but I am more obsessed with that J curve and with making something that like, is undeniably great, you know, like transcendent piece of art, which um, helps sometimes and hurts sometimes. Do you think you've done that? I don't think I've done it yet. I'm still chasing it. I think I've made some really, really good things. I well, what is in that category? <laughs> um, you're gonna make me shy now. <laughs> um, we'll move past it very quick. I I think. Um, I mean, in retrospect, Puffy Chair is very messy, but I think in that moment when we made it, it was unique and it was unto itself. And I think it spoke something that we, at in our mid to late 20s, were all feeling. And I think it, it was in that level of like uh, almost achieving greatness. I won't even let myself say greatness. Uh, I think Cyrus is a great movie. I think it's a great movie. Um, I think Togetherness is pretty great. Yeah. Um, and I think um, transparent, which I don't write or direct on, but I think that I think that is 
a colossally great piece of art. That's yeah. probably the best piece of art I've ever been involved in. And I'm proud of my part in it. Um, but it, I think my part's real small in terms of what makes that thing so special and so great. Uh, of all the things that stand out to me, it's it's weird because in the moment, I remember watching Jeff Lewis at home at that age. Mm. I was like, oh, I really like this. I don't know what why I like this so much, but there was yeah. something about it at that age. I love, that's might be, it's hard. That That's a sweet spot in my heart, but that's it, an interesting movie because it didn't land with everybody. It not, feels like not it didn't everybody. land as much as other movies. It didn't land as much as every other movies. And I like it more than other movies. But it has, we have, there are like, the people who love that movie, it's it's in their top three movies of all time. It's like <laughs> it's it's like it presses a special button. I mean, yeah. it has a real spiritual side to it, and I think I don't know. I showed it to Judd Apatow early on, and he was like, he's like, wow, man, you you know, he he kind of like made me aware that it wasn't that conventional in a in a weird way, you know. And but he loved it. He's a super. He reads like spiritual books and shit like that, like I do. And he was like. You made like a comedy about a spiritual quest, basically. You know, yeah. he's like, it's kind of weird, and and you know, he's like, your lead character is usually like the third or fourth billing guy, like the weird guy who believes in signs. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. There's something very earnest about that film and and Jason Segel's performance. Yeah, I love it. I mean, that's that movie. Yeah, it's special to me. I'm trying to remember the plot even. I don't even know the plot. He's trying to get wood the, glue. The, 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 yeah. He's literally trying right. to get wood, wood glue. It's a, it's a quest. one of the panels is broken. Because one of the panels, and, and his mom has it's, asked him to do yes, it. and he wouldn't, he and hasn't he been doing he it. He can't do it because he's getting distracted looking for signs for yeah. other things. And I remember the, there's a basketball game. Mm-hmm. Right? Is that right? Yeah, because he's following the Kevins. Right. He follows oh this guy God, into their the projects. Kevin. And then he plays basketball with Kevin, and he has chemistry with Kevin, and he thinks Kevin's going to lead him. So it's, I, I, I love that movie. Yeah. Um, that movie sticks out, but also, uh, togetherness, I thought really worked in a lot of spots and I mm. was so, it's funny. I had uh, Melanie on the show early on when we started doing it mm -hmm. and, um, I remember telling her, I woke up one morning and I went on like Twitter and the, the, the headline was, um, ballers renewed for new season, togetherness canceled. <laughs> and I was like, something's not right here. Something's wrong, guys. Something's we're not wrong. We're not nothing against ballers. I mean no. something against ballers. But like it it was bizarre that, that show had a shorter life than I think it should have. Yeah. Um I mean TV shows are complicated. TV networks are complicated. There was a big regime change, you know. Um People champion shows. They have other shows that want, they want to try that might be in the realm. I mean, it was heartbreaking, but I have to, just to be totally honest, like Mark and I were hand-making every single one of those episodes, writing and directing every single one of those episodes, and it was fucking exhausting. It was like, it was essentially the equivalent of making two and a half movies a year. Mm -hmm. um, if we had done a season three, and we were, preparing and writing a season three we were going to hand the show off to like a writer's room we're going to bring in other directors and we weren't sh honestly to we weren't totally sure how we felt about that we were going to do it so that we could live and survive i was right. like shooting transparent at the time and it was 
it was hard. It was the biggest hustle I've ever been involved with. And Mark and I have been involved in some major hustle moments. So we were kind of relieved, you know, because when like those first two seasons were, I had that in mind the whole time. Season three was going to be newness. You know, it was going to be like inventing where would the show go and bringing other people in. But I don't think it would have been the same. And now we have this like really cool canon. And also now we have like a shit ton of fans who were like angry and rabidly hungry for our next thing. So it, I don't know. I'm, I hope that the energy was transmuted somehow. Blessing in disguise. Yeah, it kind of was, uh, pers- personally at least. Has the business side of all of this, which is something that I'm sure wasn't a factor in Austin, mm-hmm. but has now become an increasingly larger part of your life, does that at all deter you from making? Does it damper some of it? I'm very blessed because Mark does lead a lot of the business side of stuff in terms of setting things up. Yeah, I, I don't think that the business side has dampened things I think I said um, damper and it should have been dampened. Uh, yeah, you, they, <laughs> we can, you know what? Vocabulary is what we decide it is. I hate when people say, you can't make that word up. It's not a word. And it's just like, I just fucking made the word. I'm a human <laughs> being and now it belongs to all of us. I appreciate how supportive you I are, am, man. I am. Thanks, Jay. I got your back, bro. Okay. Um, the one business, the one time that the business side really dampened things is when we were, you know, when we made Cyrus. Um you know, we were making it inside of the studio system and it was extremely painful for us. It was extremely, I mean, we just had to have so many conversations, so many, we had to justify things so many times and it really crushed our spirits. Ultimately, we made the movie that we wanted to make, but we had to fight so many battles to do it um, that, you know, after that movie, we decided that we weren't going to do that anymore. Because it was so painful. It was so painful. And so... What were the conversations? You know, just questioning everything along the way. Questioning script notes, questioning production design, questioning outfits. Just questioning everything. And it's, you know, when you're making a movie, there's really only like a few things that you really have to keep your eye on. I think... You know, the tricky part is knowing what those things are. The The other details, those decisions need to be made very quickly mm-hmm. and instinctively so that you don't get bogged down. Yeah. And also, this is just us. Mark and I are both, like, when you, when you speak it and you say it so many times, it you you invoke it and it lives and it becomes a thing, right? So that when you show up on set, it's kind of like already been done. You know what I mean? Right. And, and part of our aesthetic in getting these moments that we we feel like what we have to offer as filmmakers are real moments that happen to be filmed. You know, and that's what we care about. And if you speak it too many times and you go over it and you have to discuss it with the actors too many times, then you're just like trying to mimic something right. as opposed to like, we're just going to get on set and lightnings, we're just going to try and make lightning strike. Right. You know, we're going to try and get the static electricity going so the lightning fucking strikes, and then we put it inside the camera, and then we move on. It's something, I, I just finished directing my first short uh, a month ago, and we've been editing, so I haven't really seen people. You're like the seventh person I've seen in a month. Yeah. Um, but something that 
I realized in editing, I was like, you know, in parts, I think we rehearsed too much. Yeah. Um, and also, the main lesson I learned was time, like time management. Yeah. Of like, really, there's no moment that you can waste. And I, not that I waste, not that we were sitting around, but like, yeah. I don't know. I have like these vivid memories of like, oh, there was 20 minutes here where I was like, you could have taken the camera out and gotten pick up here or whatever. Anything, yeah. Any yeah. like more coverage, anything that, like, and then you're editing for a month and you're like, why the fuck did we not have this? And we don't yeah. have this. Oh, I know. It's, it's like, it's um, it's not good to think about it too much, <laughs> but um, I, I will say it gets say bleak this. very quick. I mean, yeah, Mark and I we don't we don't rehearse ever because we've had. I mean, I would say a third of what goes into our movies and TV shows is a first take, wow. because there so shit happens that you don't could never have imagined. Do you move on after the first uh, <clears throat> the first take? I mean. If the first take is perfect and amazing, we'll do one more just for safety. You know yeah. what I mean? But now, yeah, as we're older, fuck yeah, we'll move on. Before, we would always do seven takes minimum just to see. Just to have know? it. But now, because of what you're saying of time management, I'm smart enough to know that like later today or tomorrow, we're going to have a log jam and we're going to like need an extra two hours to reconnoiter the scene to make it what it needs to be because it was ill-conceived. You yeah. know, because you can't predict everything. Yeah. What is something you wish you knew at like 25 that you know now about filmmaking? God, that's a good question. All that matters is a real moment between people. You get all caught up in these structures and these ideas, but like... I think the real electricity and immediacy of filmmaking is when a director can foster a real life interaction in a really fake, weird world, you know, because this movie set is weird. <laughs> it's like the most contrived thing ever. And what you're trying to do is like foster like a deep emotional interaction. And if you can do that, that's that makes a great movie, I think. I mean, I think it's just that simple. Yeah. Can you get anything that feels like anything? Yes. Yeah. And then also like this is what all this is what I was doing in my twenties and what every college student is doing is like, I think we got it. We can move on, right? Yeah, they said the things and we put them inside the camera. If that's your attitude, you didn't get it. Yeah. So like when I talk about this is John, this guy trying to perfect the person personal greeting with his answering machine, having a breakdown, like Mark did it. He was also on edge. He wasn't 29, but he was 26 and he was on edge, you know? So it was there. It was imminent for him. And that breakdown was real. He cried. He was yelling at the answering machine. It was hilarious. When I was holding the camera, I was like tearing up and giggling. And I know that sounds real obvious, but just like if it doesn't, your job as a director is like to be the surrogate for the audience. Yeah. It's not to like be a dictator and like do the thing. No, do it more this way. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Like, what I, accent is that? I don't know. It's a Eastern European uh, dictator. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I mean, at least for us, like, that's the goal of being a director is like, you know, did this thing happen? Did it move me? 
you know, did it create emotion in me? And if it didn't, something's wrong. And now I got to figure out how to fix it. You know, it might be the actors, it might be the script, it might, it might be the setting. It might be that the timing's all wrong. You you don't know. Yeah. No, you don't know. Uh, And and I, you know, someone who's not done it before, I'm just talking about my own limited experience. Um, You really don't know until you know you don't know like later on yeah you don't know until you get an editorial and you're like oh that it becomes painfully obvious what would have fixed the the thing yeah i mean that's the hard thing about filmmaking is there's like a thousand elements that go into it and only like 20 of them matter but you don't (laughs) know which ones those are yeah and you don't really learn until you fail a bunch and then you make i mean because the myth of like you wake up one morning you take a shit and a great movie comes out all those people link later soderbergh me and Mark with puffy chair. And the myth people on. bought about you guys. Yeah, we sold the myth, but it's not true. I mean, we've all made really bad movies and embarrassing movies. And, you know, um, and then sometimes like people make a great movie and they get lucky and then they have like a big ass slump. Yeah. You know, so it's like, and also people make really good movies and then they get boring and bad. That's the most common ar- yeah. arc of a director. And I, I think the main reason for that is that it's really fucking hard. It's really fucking hard, and nobody wants to suffer that much. Nobody wants to live in that chaos and that beginner's mind when you're like 45 years old and your kids are beating the shit out of you every day. Yeah. Yeah, I should do something else. <laughs> yeah, it's a goddamn nightmare, man. I don't, you know yeah. what? It's in, in despite of all of that, I will say when I think back on it, I don't know. I imagine you had this similar experience after making your first few things. Yeah, it's a fucking nightmare, but it's the night I'd rather be in that nightmare than any other. Yeah, yeah. This is a nightmare that um is worthy of my energy and time. Yeah. And you know, like Mark would say is like this is the kind of nightmare I need to to not be my own nightmare. <laughs> you know, it's like a way to externalize your neurosis filmmaking is you know because i will turn it on myself and he will too you know so it's like all right let's throw ourselves in this ridiculously impossible herculean task do you think you turn on yourself too often yes (laughs) that's what saint john's word is for (laughs) and why do you think that is because i'll tell you from the outset you know yeah from someone who doesn't know you, you, uh, on a resume, if we're looking at a CV, yeah. you would be checking off all the boxes that would tell a normal person <laughs> that it's enough, th- that this is okay, yeah. that you're going to feel not horrible. My therapist told me Thursday, she was like, I think you need to think about when it's going to be enough. And I was like, yeah, that's a good point. But then I have like, young filmmakers who come to me and they're like, why are you beating yourself up so much? Like you figure this out, you know what you're doing. And I'm like, because the beating the self up is how you get the good stuff. It's like getting into beginner's mind. It's like inventing, you're inventing, reinventing, scared that it's not going to work, taking chances enough to where it could fall apart on you so that you're like on the edge of like, what is important to you in this moment and everything that you feel and like, you know, it's like a, it's like priming yourself to be like emotionally available, intellectually available, imminently in touch with this moment in society. Uh, You know, all that shit. (laughs) All the shit. All that shit. 
What if it's never enough? I'm pretty sure it's never enough. <clears throat> but you're not entirely sure. I'm not entirely sure. I think I can do better. I think I can do better. And I'm chasing that. Um, uh, I'm not sure. There is a whole other side of me that, that's like, I never dreamed I would ever get to go to Sundance. And I have exceeded my wildest dreams yeah. by getting This Is John into Sundance in 2003. But all of those things that you could describe and, and go down the list, and the, anyone who's done this long enough can feel like, oh, there are some external realities that say, I've done okay. Yeah. And, and I can mention them in conversation with people I don't know very well, and it can make it tolerable but i know that at the end of the day when i'm by myself at home mm -hmm. the good things that happen and that have happened that it may happen again mm -hmm. do nothing for me yeah the accomplishments don't do it it's like um i've had some of the most peak emotional spiritual intellectual experiences in movie theaters in my own life movies have like changed me in ways and enlightened me in ways that like are life-changing and i want to do that for other people like i and i want to reach those heights because i want to meet those people there who did that for me you know i want to meet the coen brothers when they made raising arizona for me when i was 14 years old and i want to like reach that point and i want to i want to do that for other people because life's fucking hard it's really it's really hard uh, to just do life and to have those, you know, those 90 minutes of raising Arizona, it's, it's like a fucking gold mine. You can yeah. turn, you can hit play on your phone right now and sit in that gold mine for 90 minutes and be like wildly entertained and laugh and remember what everything's about in life. Like that is what I'm after, you know, to like share that with other people. And I know I've done it for a lot of people, but I want to do it for more people and I want to like um, do it more completely in terms of communicating what it feels like, you know, to like do life and to remind myself that like, you know, life life can be exciting and, and fun and amazing. J.D. Plus, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So Special thanks this week to Shipra Gupta and Adam Kirsch for arranging this conversation. The Orchard will release Outside In, Jay's latest film, in select theaters on March 30th and all digital platforms April 3rd. If you enjoyed that talk with Jay, you'd probably enjoy our episodes with Melanie Linsky, Miguel Arteta, Ben Schwartz. You can find all of those conversations and more at www.talkeasypod.com. We're also on Twitter and Facebook at TalkEasyPod. And should you want to write the show, feel free to do so at sam at talkeasypod.com. As always, our show is executive produced by David Chen. 
graphics by Ian Jones. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Our associate producer is Valerie Attenhofer. And the show is produced by Dylan Peck. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.